So I brought a couple of things with me, and I can tell already that just from uh, kind of listening to myself during the meditation that they've had an influence on my evening. <laughs> so, <laughs> one, of course, is the middle-length discourses, so I'm going to read one sutta to you. So this is the Buddha's words for those who have not seen it before. Middle-length discourses of the Buddha. And the other thing I brought with me are some <coughs> excerpts from some talks by Upasaka Ki Nanyong. And I don't, has anybody ever heard of Upasaka Ki? No, she's, she is, um, she was a uh, Thai lay woman practitioner. She didn't ordain as a nun, but she lived a life like a forest monk. And she, she was an incredible practitioner, and the reports are fully enlightened uh, nun, and, or non-nun, <laughs> fully enlightened <laughs> practitioner. And she taught in the... Um, the style of the forest masters, uh, you know. Well, you'll get a flavor of it and see what you think. So this this sutta that is a short one, but there are actually four different versions of it, right, in a row in in this book, and it's got four different versions because it's actually quite foundational very foundational to the practice and to the Buddhist teachings. In fact, that's the four versions that in, in the subsequent versions, that's what we're told. Uh, so the first one is the Buddha himself teaching this. And this is, uh, in Pali, the word is Bhadakarata. It's a Bhadakarata Sutta. And that that has a few couple of different translations. The translators have had a hard time uh, deciding how to render this or how to translate it. And the one that I have here, which is um, Venerable Nyanamoli and, and Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi's version, A Single Excellent Night. Um, Ajahn Jeff, Trinisuro Bhikkhu, translated translates it as an auspicious day. <laughs> and the reason for that is that it, um, what the Buddha is really talking about is that it's, it's about us you know, making this day special or this time, realizing that right here and now, this is when we need to practice. And if we put in the effort and we practice in a correct way or a good way or uh, then then we can see results and I was thinking about today today it's leap year it's the 29th of February this is a very special day and uh, oh I guess one other thing I brought with me was uh, a little announcement about something else we could have been doing tonight um, <laughs> Occupy Oakland is having a funeral for capitalism tonight. On <laughs> <laughs> leap day, use your extra day to attend a funeral for capitalism, which will include 
a eulogy, a procession through the streets with a New Orleans-style brass band, oh, wow. a burial, <laughs> and dancing on the grave to follow. <laughs> um, funeral tire suggested. <laughs> Bid farewell to a system that brings us meaningless jobs, billionaires, shopping malls, structural poverty, and ecological collapse. May it roast in hell or rot in peace. <laughs> Let's resurrect a world of cooperation, justice, pleasure, and beauty from its moldy bones. Don't mourn, organize. <laughs> but, <laughs> Very clever. So um, we're here, though, with the Buddhist words on an excellent night or an auspicious day. Oh, to explain that difference in translation, um, Ajahn Jeff points out that what the Buddha is teaching, what I mean, really, in essence, this teaching is about continuous mindfulness, continuous focus, and it's more than mindfulness it's bringing in the it's bringing in the vipassana the vipassati the insight the investigation and um, Ajahn Jeff said that you know the what the Buddha is really talking about here is you know for for us we talk about a 24-hour period like this is a, this is a special day because we follow the the solar calendar, <coughs> but at the time of the Buddha in that part of the world they followed the lunar calendar. Mm-hmm. So Ajahn Jeff's mm-hmm. sense of it is that they're talking about an auspicious night when that actually means ah this twenty four hour period. This mm-hmm. for us it's a day, for them it's a night. Okay, so. This is what the Buddha said, as far as we know. Thus have I, well, they all start, these suttas all start with thus have I heard, which is the the repeating of what the Buddha said. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Sawati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. There he addressed the bhikkhus, which is the word for monks, thus, bhikkhus, Venerable sir, they replied, and the Blessed One said this, because I shall teach you the summary and exposition of the one who has had a single excellent night. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, Venerable sir, the Bhikkhus replied, and the Blessed One said this. So this is, this next bit is kind of in verse. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not yet been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. And here the word insight is vipassati which is the same as vipassana. So this is a vipassana meditation group. This is about investigation and development of insight. And that's exactly what the Buddha is talking about here. 
Let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. (laughs) So, um, just to explain this a little bit, and maybe give a little couple of phrases in uh, Ajahn Jeff's words translation you shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future what is past is left behind and the future is yet unreached whatever quality is present you clearly see right there, right there, not taken in, unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. Ardently doing what should be done today for who knows, tomorrow, death. There is no bargaining with mortality and his mighty horde. Whoever lives thus ardently, relentlessly both day and night, has truly had an auspicious day, so says the peaceful sage. So I think I, I enjoy taking more than one translation sometimes because you get a rounder sense, I think, of what's, what the Buddha is saying. And then the Buddha goes on to explain, so how because does one revive the past? Well, one finds delight there thinking, I had such material form in the past. So now he's going to go through the five aggregates, which, which for those who haven't had experience with that terminology, it's the way the Buddha identified what we would point at as anything that we would think is us, material form or body, I had such feeling in the past, I had such perception in the past, I had such formations or mental formations or mental activities, thought processes, I had such consciousness in the past. That's how one revives the past. And how does one not revive the past? One does not find delight there thinking, I had such material form in the past and on in the same way. So you don't delight in. So I don't know how it is for you when when you're meditating, but I know for myself when I get distracted by some thoughts I mean there's obviously some kind of hook there that's leading me away from my meditation object and then part of part of what we need to do to actually practice vipassana to actually do the investigation uh, moving beyond 
just concentration and calm is to really investigate what's this about? What is that hook? So we can do that in a few different ways, but one way is we can identify, oh, this is about the past or this is about the future. And then what the commentary to this sutta says, particularly relating to vipassati, vipassana, is looking at it, whatever is happening, whatever that mental state is, whatever those thoughts are, in terms of the three characteristics that the Buddha talks about again and again in in the teachings. Is this permanent or impermanent? Is it suffering or not suffering? And of course, the Buddha makes clear that ultimately everything that is impermanent if we cling to that, we're going to suffer. And then is it self or not self? And of course, we also know that the teaching around that is if it's not permanent, if clinging to it causes suffering, there's no way it can actually be a a substantial self. So, what's the point of digging into that, of seeing that, Because when we see that at a deep level, it's like holding on to a hot coal. (laughs) We don't want to cling to it anymore. It just becomes natural to let it go. Then the commentary goes on to say, investigating in terms of disenchantment. So once we've recognized the true nature of whatever this mental experiences that we're having, then disenchantment automatically arises. And he uses four different words here. It's a progression, really. Disenchantment, then dispassion. We just don't have the same urge for it. So instead of passion, it's dispassion then cessation, and then relinquishment. When we really put it down, what happens? Peace. Then the Buddha talks in the same way about the future. How does one build up hope upon the future? There's delight in thinking about what will be, what may be. So when I think about this in terms of those five aggregates form which covers everything from our body to anything material feeling perception or memory thought formations consciousness which is sometimes rendered as sense consciousness it's interesting to think about well if I'm having thoughts about the future or the past Do they always fall into those categories or some combination of those categories? Hmm. Well, the teaching is that none of that is self. None of that is permanent. None of that is really going to bring happiness. Hmm. Then the Buddha talks about the present. And he says, And how, bhikkhus, is one vanquished 
in regard to presently arisen states, or Ajahn Jeff translates that as how is one taken in with regard to present qualities? There's the case where an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person who has not seen the Noble Ones, is not versed in the teachings of the Noble Ones, is not trained in the teachings of the Noble Ones, sees form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in self, or self as in form. One of the ways that we think this body's me, or mine, or this is mine, or, you know, and then the same for feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. That's how we get taken in. We think that has something to do with us, that there is an us, there is a me or a mine involved. And how bhikkhus is one invincible in regard to presently arisen states. Here bhikkhus a well-taught noble disciple who has regard for the noble ones. In other words, someone who's studied, learned, <coughs> associated with wise people, developed their mind, they've seen for themselves that form is not self and so on with the other aggregates. That's how one is invincible in regard to presently arisen states. And then the same verse is repeated. Let not a person revive the past. Maybe I'll just read it through again. Or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day and by night. It is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So it was with this, with reference to this, that it was said, Bhikkhus, I shall teach you the summary and exposition of one who has had a single excellent night. And that is what the Blessed One said, and the Bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. took a, a few short quotes from Upasaka Key, and this can all be found online at Access to Insight. I think she's a wonderful teacher. Um, there are a couple of small volumes, small books. One is called An Unentangled Knowing, and uh, one is called Pure and Simple, and in this particular excerpt, comes from something called Directions for Insight. Six Dhamma talks on centering the mind in non-attachment. And this is just a bit from the fifth one. 
which is entitled Overcoming Suffering. Those who are still attached to the five aggregates thinking they are myself must investigate to see that each of them really embraces suffering, that body and mind are suffering. When you can see all of this from the coarse to the subtle level, you'll be able to rise above pleasure and pain for both are then given up. However, without a full understanding, you will still yearn for pleasure and the more you desire, the more you will suffer. And then this is a, a, a quote from the sixth talk in the series called Training for Liberation. Carefully stabilize the mind so that it doesn't grasp after anything, including any memory or thought which may arise. Just concentrate on doing this and you will sweep clean the mind. Every condition arises and then ceases. Don't grasp hold of anything, thinking it's good or bad, or taking it as oneself. Then there's not much else to do. There are then no fantasies and thought fabrications about the past or future. They've all stopped. Things arise and cease just that. So you notice it's not about stopping the mind. It's not about ending thought. It's about being crystal clear about the fact that this phenomenon of thought and feeling and all the rest has nothing to do with a self. We don't have to get caught up in it. We don't have to suffer. Here's another excerpt. This is from Aware Right at Awareness. And this is um, in a volume called Looking Inward. I think this is also part of uh, Unentangled Knowing. Living in this world, the mental and physical phenomena of these five aggregates gives us plenty to contemplate. The truths we must learn how to read in this body and mind are here to be read with every moment. We don't have to get wrapped up with any other extraneous themes because all the themes we need are right here in the body and mind. If you contemplate mental and physical events to see how they arise and disband right in the here and now, and don't get involved with external things like sights making contact with the eyes or sounds with the ears, then there really aren't a lot of issues. The mind can be at equilibrium, calm and undisturbed. It can look after itself and maintain its balance. You'll come to sense that if you're aware, right at awareness, in and of itself, the mind will see their constant rising and disbanding and won't be embroiled in anything. This way, it can be disengaged, empty, and free. But if it goes out to label things as good or evil, as me or mine, it gets attached to anything. 
or gets attached to anything, it'll become unsettled and disturbed. So there are a couple of things that I want to point out in this, and one of them relates to one of the other four versions of this sutta. So the what I read to you is the Buddha talking, and the next one is Ananda talking. So Ananda was the Buddha's cousin and attendant for a, a long period of time, maybe the last 20 years or more of his life. Uh, I think it was when the Buddha was around 55 that he started to have a regular attendant. And um, I think he taught for another 30 years after that. So Ananda was really close to the Buddha, and he, re- he was the foremost in recalling the suttas. And so one of the suttas has um, the Buddha coming up uh, upon a group of monks and, and saying, so, you know, what have you been doing and talking about? And Ananda is giving this same exact teaching that the Buddha had given. In, two, in the two other suttas, deities, devas, come to visit a monk and they say, do you know this teaching? And the monk says, no, I don't. And the, and the deva, the deity, says, learn it. This mm-hmm. is really fundamental, foundational to the path. So then there's a story about how the monk goes about uh, learning about this and through the Buddha and getting it explained by another, another monk. Now, one of the explanations, instead of going through the five aggregates, talks about the six sense bases. So, has the investigation going eye and forms, ear and sounds, nose and odors, taste and, um, you know, tongue, <laughs> tongue and taste, <laughs> uh, body and tangibles, and mind and thoughts. And so the, you can see how we can vary our investigation to keep the practice fresh. But I think what one thing that's challenging, at least I know for myself and people tell me too, is it's so easy to let ourselves in our meditation practice kind of drift um, instead of really bringing up the energy to be very on top of what's happening moment to moment in our mental states. So part of what I was mentioning in the beginning that I felt like my, even my tone, it's kind of like when I, uh, impacted by what I brought along, it's like the Thai forest way of teaching about these things is a lot of energy. It's like You've really got to relentlessly go after the, you know, and I really find that supportive. I'm not sure if everyone does, but I really do. Uh, and Upasika Key, I didn't, I didn't um, include a lot of the um, rousing kinds of quotes, but they're there. I encourage you to, to pick her up and, and read. Um, also, this phrase that she uses, so she, so she talks here about the sights and contact with the eyes, and then it's interesting that, you know, the alternative in the other sutta is, is that same collection. But this phrase that she uses, aware, right at awareness, 
is something that I heard a monk talk about in Thailand in a way that I, I found useful. This was Ajahn Panyawato. Um, has anybody heard of him? Do you know him? I think you do, don't you, Bill? You know Ajahn Panyawato. He was an Englishman who went to Thailand and lived with Ajahn Mahabur, who only died a couple years ago. He was kind of, he's considered the arahant of the age in Thailand, this uh, very fierce Thai monk, um, austere. And this, this English man uh, came to live with Ajahn Mahabua, and he lived there as a monk on that, in that forest monastery in Thailand for 40 years. And it was amazing. Um, so I stayed there at Ajahn Mahabua's monastery and was able to talk with Ajahn Panyawato almost every day. And this was only shortly before he died. So it was, a, it was such a gift. And one of the things he talked about is the difference between sort of training in mindfulness and what he called the real mindfulness. And the kind of training in mindfulness is, okay, I'm doing walking meditation, I'm paying attention to my feet, or um, even paying attention to my breath. He, he talked about all of those things, like you have a meditation object, you have something that you're paying attention to, this is, this is the training, you're training yourself to be mindful. But he said real mindfulness, kind of like, you know, you're really being mindful, you set up mindfulness right at the mind, like the gate of the mind. And from that point, so this is like awareness, right at awareness, it catches everything. It's not just about what's happening in your feet or what's happening in your breath. And the way Ajahn Panyawada described it, he said, it's like you have a telephone system and... Of course, you have kind of the main system centralized, and then you have all these telephones that are out at the end of each line. And he said, if you're practicing, you know, like looking at your feet, then you're looking out here at one of these phones, let's say, and you're, you're kind of like checking to see if a call is wanting to be made or there's something happening there. And so he said, but instead of being out there, to have your awareness right at the mind, is you have your awareness right here in the center, in central. And you catch everything, all the calls that come in from wherever they come. You're right there, noticing, being completely aware of their nature. And... So I would just encourage you, take that into your meditation. Ask yourself, what is that? What is it like? What does it mean to be present or aware right at awareness, right? So it's like we, we catch that thought even before it all, almost emerges into consciousness or we catch that sensation. We're really at the, at the junction box, at the central command control <laughs> with our awareness and just see what that's like 
the mind, if mindfulness and awareness are watching over it, won't meet with any suffering as the result of its actions. If suffering does arise, we'll be immediately aware of it and able to put it out. This is one point of the practice we can work at constantly. Constant, all-around, present awareness like this. So you kind of get that sense. It's not like you're going out to see everything, but you've got that constant present awareness right at the mind. This is something we can work at in every posture, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Make sure that your mindfulness stays continuous. So I think that's the point of this one auspicious day. It's like that 24-hour continuous practice with alertness and presence and awareness. And then there's one last quote, and, and this one is from Upasaka Ki, Overcoming Suffering. Is that true? Yes. There's nothing mysterious about this crossing over to the farther shore. But first you must give up the view of self and the five aggregates by investigating to see them all as suffering. None of them are me or mine. So, any questions? Or comments or sharings of experience? I, I, I thought I was being mindful. I was a little bit late coming this evening, and I thought I was being mindful as I was driving along and I ran a red light. And was I, you know, was I being mindful? Uh, you can't be mindful of everything. I, I really believe that. I think somehow at some level we pick and choose what we're mindful of. And um, I think there's a certain skillfulness in being mindful in that way of choosing things that are safe to be aware of. Like, I guess I was thinking about my inner state or something. And I found myself in the middle of the intersection with the wow. red light there. Yeah. And, you know, I put my brakes on and thought, the heck with it, I better just get out of the way. Mm -hmm. And I felt very silly. And then I thought, you know, that was not a good time to be inwardly mindful. Right. And um, it, that has often come to me lately, that you cannot be mindful of everything all the time. But you can be mindful. You can be mindful all the time. I don't think you can be mindful of everything. What do you think? Am I misunderstanding? I don't think you're misunderstanding, and I think you're right about, I mean, I once I heard a monk say, you have to be mindful of something, mindful of something, you know, and, and that was a big relief to me. <laughs> However, <laughs> what I think that Ajahn Panyawato is talking about, or Pasca Ki is talking about, is the special situation first of all, the special situation of being in meditation. Mm -hmm. So that's where we need to practice this awareness. And then, I mean, certainly, so, so there are other parts of what Upasakaki talks about where she's saying, you know, you can be mindful like this while you're doing your tasks, mm -hmm. right? You know, if you're sweeping the floor, okay. But if I'm programming the computer... I'm probably going to be 
focused on that and I may not realize that my shoulders are actually very tight but you know it's it's like I think from what I can gather the further we develop the mind the more we can take in Mm -hmm. in that mindfulness Mm -hmm. so there was a monk once who um, was living with Ajahn Mahabhua a young monk and he was talking about um, he and I were talking about this topic actually and he said well Ajahn Mahabhua's mindfulness and my mindfulness mm-hmm. are two different things <laughs> <laughs> and you know I think that's right I think we have a long way to stretch into what's capable what we're capable of and we need to keep doing that and so I totally agree with you. We're driving. We should be paying attention, you know. And there are lots of stories, too, of monks, you know, like there was a monk uh, who would come to visit Ajahn Chah's monastery, and then he was more senior than everybody else, and he was very um, proud of his mindfulness. And then he had to lead everybody on the alms round, and he would be so mindful and focused that he'd lead them in the wrong direction, and everybody's like, hi. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like that, and um, probably a good idea not to be too sure of ourselves in terms of how great our mindfulness is, <laughs> but, um, but to really just keep, keep working to increase the capacity of awareness and clear comprehension. I think if we're really present and aware, it is. I mean, for myself... Mindfulness is, I think mind, I'm really being mindful when I can also identify that I'm really calm. There's a peacefulness and there's an awareness, a, a dispassion, a detachment from the experience in a way that's very healthy. And I had a, I'll just end with this little story because it was about driving. I was driving back from a Baigiri monastery and I had a three-hour trip back to San Jose and I had been at the monastery a few days so I had that kind of nice, you know. (laughs) But I had, just before I left, I told Ajahn Pasano, I'm just so pathetic. I I can't keep my mind still for five minutes. It's just like I can't follow my breath for... I was really mm, dis- kind of disgusted. So I got in the car. I was driving alone. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to, there's the clock I can see. I'm just going to see how long, while I'm driving and focused on everything that I'm doing and, and careful and all that, how long I can stay present with my breath. Every in-breath and every out-breath. And let's see if I can do it for five minutes. Or whatever. While you're driving. While I was driving. And I was completely aware of all the driving stuff. But I wasn't listening to, you know, a Dharma talk and I wasn't talking to anybody and I wasn't doing any of that. I was present with my breath and I was present with everything that was going on around me and you know in in the driving. And you know I kept Noticing each in-breath and each out-breath and noticing each and I'd look at the clock and wow, it's it's been 10 minutes. 
And the calm that was settling in and the awareness and the clarity was increasing. And it was, okay. So I kept noticing each breath. And then something happened as I was driving and my attention had to be, you know, like um, it was something like, you know, something someone else did on the road that really caught my attention. Oh, I missed that in breath. But then I was back, I could be with the breath again. I was able to do that, and I was able to watch thoughts. Like I saw this beautiful Victorian house, a winery, you know, and there was this, and I could experience the feeling that arose with the thought. Oh, you know, well, okay. Then I was able to investigate what's that, what's that attraction about? Oh, that attraction is connected to a lot of perceptions around, you know, having Christmas in this beautiful Victorian house with the fresh-baked cookie smell and the family all around. And, you know, so I could, I could identify the whole complex and then um, just see that, but all at the same time of being completely present with the breath and present with what I was doing. I got home after three hours, and I was so alert and so at peace. So for me, it's like when I'm being really being mindful, I think there is a, a softness and an energy. You know, you feel like you've meditated because you have. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.